So I went shopping for some clothes in a store one time and gathered all of my goods together to go try on in the, in the, in the changing room. And the lady that was accompanying me back there asked me what my name was and how I like to sweat. Have you ever been asked that before? How do you like to sweat? And so I stumbled on some words and I said, I like to sweat through CrossFit. Okay. And so she put that on the board. This is Mike CrossFit. Okay. And for the rest of the time I was in that store, I was called Mike CrossFit. And so uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I thought it was pretty cool, interesting question. So we're going to ask you the same question today, all right? We did a survey last week. If you don't remember, if you were here, get your phones out. So you get ready. Last week we asked the survey, what's your favorite thing, sport to watch during the Olympics? And hands down, gymnastics won out, uh, beating all other, all the other sports. But here's the question this week. So you'll have to dial back in to 22333 and then join back into the text group again, uh, GPC NWA, but then you're going to put down your answer to this question. What's your favorite way to sweat? Biking? Again, I make up the survey, so I get to make up the questions and the options, all right? CrossFit's in there, okay? Running or walking? Team sports? Now, again, that, that covers a gamut of things, but what is your, your team sport, whatever it may be? Uh, I know there's a lot that I'm missing. Swimming is there. And again, I kind of tried to think outside of sports even, maybe gardening. Maybe you like to get out and dig in dirt and that gets your blood going and that gets your your sweat on, I guess. And then there's that other category, okay? It could be yoga. It could be any other number of things out there. So you choose what it is that is your way, favorite way to sweat. Fill that survey, text that into that number. Let's see what we have from our first service. The favorite way to go is running and walking, okay? So we see your surveys coming in and others actually right in there. So it'd be interesting to know what all the others are. And so we'll just have to leave that up for our imagination and what that, that, that might be, all right? Uh, if CrossFit was going to win, then I was going to do some burpees on the stage or something like that. But since it didn't and you've already answered your question, you can't uh, change your, your answer. All right, so here we go. We're in this series and we're talking about going for the gold. Obviously, it's on the, uh, at the time that we're looking at the Olympics and we're enjoying watching the opening uh, ceremonies of the night and, and then maybe to, today, this afternoon, I know our television is just like running constant sports and constant games and we're checking the guides for what's on when and we enjoy watching that. These 550 U.S. delegates that are there representing us our nation being represented there. And you know one thing about these athletes, when you start diving into the stories behind their greatness, because they're not just the greatest at their college collegiate level, they're the greatest of all the collegiate, if it's swimming or if it's something at that age or it's whatever the age is, they're the greatest of the greatest of the greats. And then to be able to stand on a podium and to be able to get a medal you know, that's, that is the greatest of the greats of the greats of the greats. I mean, it's just like this for this year. And then there will be another one in four years from now. And so it's incredible, though, when you see the talent and the skill and the balance and the stamina and the coordination and the strength and uh, that all wraps up in these athletes that we watch. And I like the stories behind them as much as I like watching them perform. I like to study how they eat and how they, what, they, what they eat and how they sleep and their regiments and how they go into it. They eat breathe, sleep, this, whatever this is, whatever that sport is. It is their life. Um, 
Jesse Owens, a great story, great movie out. Uh, you can watch it on pay-per-view or something like that. Uh, called, I think it's called Race. Uh, telling the Jesse Owens story. And as you, as you watch that story, and, and uh, you have to rem- it reminded me of, a, of an interview that uh, Bud Greenspan did of Jesse Owens before his passing. 28 years following, 28 years following the Olympics in 1936. And this is what uh, Jesse Owens said. He said, it was a lifetime of training for just 10 seconds. I mean, everything that he had done for, for so long in his life had been up to that starting block of being that person who would win in that, in the, that, that pivotal Olympics in, in, in Berlin and how he would win this gold medal and how he would set records and just an incredible individual, an incredible story, but all of his life leading up to just 10 seconds. You know, all of our life is not leading up to 10 seconds, but it is all leading up to eternity. And it will make this time down here look like 10 seconds when you compare it to eternity. And whenever you study the greatness of the athletes of today, you can find a lot of similarities with the greatness of the people that we study and admire from the Scriptures. And Paul, as we mentioned last week, and Peter and and John and James, all of them all refer to this one particular word that's used 18 different times in the New Testament. It's the Greek word stephanos. The word stephanos is the Greek word for crown. It's one of them. The other word, diadem, is actually only used for royalty, only used for a king. But this one is more of a general crown. It's used, though, many times in the Greek language, in the Koine Greek. It's used for the crown that in athletes' terms, that's what they would win. They wouldn't win medals. They would win crowns. And I went through a little bit of the history of, the, of Stephanos and when it's used and how the Spartans used it and how beauty and how it symbolized deity and how it stim- symbolized beauty and how it symbolized power and how it symbolized so many different things. So whenever the writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whenever John and James and, and Peter and Paul were writing the scriptures, God inspired them all to use this one Greek word, Stephanos. So this entire series, for a month, we're going to be studying Stephanos. Why is it that every time Stephanos is used, every time crown is used, every time it's sometimes translated prize, sometimes translated wreath, why is it that it's used so much? It's this prize, it's this element that that signifies an award. Again, power, honor, it symbolizes so many different things because we, as followers of God, those who live according to a certain way will receive a Stephanos. Now, is it a literal or is it a metaphor? I'll let that be determined on that side. But I have never been yet disappointed with anything that God has planned or done in my life. So I don't think I'll be disappointed with what it is, whatever it is. But here's one of the life principles that I shared with you last week. And it's that, is that we reward what we value. And we value what we reward. And what God set up in some kind of system in time and space in which we live, he set up certain values. But because these values are valuable, he's going to, on the backside, reward us for those valuables, for those values as we live them out. A faith that God values is a faith that God rewards. Now, in no way is 
Paul, John, Peter, or any of the other writers ever talking about that if you will do a certain thing, you'll receive heaven, okay? Again, that was never the communication. But because you've received a certain thing, you will live a certain way. You will live a different life on different values and standards, and you will live differently and think differently and process differently. We talked about it last week when Paul was speaking to first century Corinth, where the games originated from. And he talked about how in, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 9, we talked about discipline and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I brought out this, this, this element of how, what God, the faith that God values and the faith that God rewards is God rewards a faith that is intensely intentional. Intensely intentional. All right, these words are not going to flow together off your tongue really easy, so just hang on to them. And let it be something that marinates in your mind throughout the week. Is my faith intensely intentional? And he uses the metaphor of a runner. All in a race, all runners run. Now, again, just think about that. That's kind of an oxymoron. I mean, it's not an oxymoron. That's kind of a no-brainer, okay? All runners run. You say you're a runner, but you're not running? You're not a runner. You're a would-be runner. You're, you're a walker. You're a, you're a shuffler. Uh, when I run, I shuffle. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm contradicting myself. It looks more like a shuffle than it does a run. But runners run. Or you're not a runner. You can say all day long and you can go buy the most expensive bike in the store and put it hanging up on the, in, in your garage and buy all the equipment and all that kind of stuff. But you're not a biker unless you're on a bike. You're not a runner unless you're running. You're not a follower unless you're following. You're not living for Christ unless you are what? Living for Christ. So he really puts it out there. He says, listen, you're going to have to be, and he not only chooses the metaphor that's running, sweat, beads of sweat, pools of sweat come off of me when I run. And there's an intensity about this. I wonder sometimes, do we pray with intensity? We can talk about prayer. I want to pray. I want to be a person of prayer. But unless we're praying, we're not a person of prayer. I want to be generous. I want to be more faithful with my, with my giving. But unless I'm generous with my giving, I'm not generous. I, I want to be in the Word of God. I want to read the Bible. I, I, I want to share my faith. But unless I'm doing it, I'm not. See, see, what we're going to have to do is if we're going to have to quit talking about following Jesus, we're going to have to start following Jesus. And what does that look like? It looks like you're going to have an intensely intentional faith. That means you're going to say this. You're going to say no to some things you want to say yes to. You're going to say yes to some things you want to say no to. You're, you're going to go into strict training, as Paul talks about. You're going to discipline your body, as Paul talks about. You're going to do all these things because you realize that saying and, and training and discipline is a part of what it means to follow Christ. Let's talk about today. God's rewards of faith that's lived with substantive consistency. All right? We'll talk about that. Again, doesn't roll off your tongue exactly, right? Substantive consistency. Where it's not going to be something that you're just going to live for God on Sunday, but you're not on Monday. But there's a consistency. But I also want to really emphasize the word substantive. Because... Um, I, I read from a lot, and you hear me quote from a guy named George Barna a lot. Let me give you a little bit of backstory on George Barna. 
Barna, Gallup, all those guys, Pew Research, all those people, they're all constantly studying the American culture or the cultures around the world, and they're, they're reporting on them. And I, I love that kind of stuff. I could get a degree in sociology and, and would love every bit of that. George Barna, I like more than any of them because he comes at it from an evangelical kind of frame of reference, and he doesn't just ask a surface-level question. He didn't just say, how many of y'all believe you're born again? Now, how many of y'all believe that you're Christian? He actually has a definition for what that looks like. How many of y'all would say, this is who you are in your faith? And then, I'll know that, he won't ask a surface-level question. He'll come right behind it and probe into that, into that question even deeper. So let me give you an example. Four out of five Christians have a deep, this is what they say, four out of five Christians say, I have a deep personal commitment to the Christian faith as a top priority for their future. That's a beautiful statement. That's one that I would dare say that probably four out of five people in this room right now would say, hey, that's me. I have a deep commitment to the Christian faith. It's one of the top priorities in my life. After all, Mike, I'm here listening to you talk, right? So that constitutes my level of commitment. But when he dove into the same people who answered that survey, he asked them and he found this out. One out of five Christians listed something spiritual as a priority goal in their life. Sharing my faith, praying more, reading my Bible, praying with with my children daily. It's like, hey, I have a big goal over here. I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to be really devoted, but hey, I don't have any plans for it. Hey, I want to be serious about following. I want to be a gold medal Christian. I want to be one of those Christians that when I get to heaven, Mother Teresa is going to wish she was my, my, live my life. She's going to wish you were me kind of feeling. No, listen, if I don't make plans today, if I don't make a priority today, if I don't put it into my life today, it's not going to happen. I'm going to have to intentionally with intensity live out my faith. I'm going to have to go into my faith and say, is there really substance to my faith? Is there really significant, consistent substance to my faith? Barna goes on to come up with this phrase, and it has hung with me ever since, that most of America suffers from this, sentiments without substance. We're notional. We like the idea of following Christ. We have the sentiment of it. We, we like the, the, the smell of the burning candles. We like the, the feel of a Christmas Eve service. We like the sound of a good band on Sunday mornings. We like the sentiment of it. But man, don't make me change my life out there. Don't make me reprioritize my money. Don't make me reprioritize my time. We have sentiment without substance. And I want to call us out. If we're really going to live at the level to go for the gold to really go for the prize. We need to move away from a sentiment without substance to substance with significance. I want that last phrase to define us. That there will be a life of substance with significance attached to it. Take your Bibles. We find the book of 2 Timothy. It's the last letter of Paul's, all of his writing. 13 of the New Testament books Paul wrote, we know. And this is the last one, written in about... I don't know, about 60, 65 A.D. 
He's writing it from house arrest in Rome. He's writing it to young Timothy who's pastoring over in Ephesus. He kind of leaves Timothy in charge and he kind of pastors the pastors at this point in his, in his life. And he knows, he can smell it. The end of his life is near. And we come to 2 Timothy and we find these words that are, are, are kind of what some people have called the last will and testament of Paul. And he says in verse 6, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I'm being poured. He draws from Exodus chapter 29. You can read it for yourself. Verse 40, where it talks about in the Old Testament where they would pour out wine on the altar as a drink offering to God. He says, I am already present tense being poured out. We're going to see in this reading today, we're going to see Paul in the present. We're going to see Paul in the past. And we're going to see Paul in the future. But what we're going to do with Paul in the, in, in, the, in, in, the, in the present where he says, right now I am being poured out and the time of my departure has come. And literally he uses a shipping term here for it's time for the boat to set sail. It's time for, it's time for you to catch the plane. You're going to be late for your appointment. That's what he's saying. It's time. I'm gone. My days are numbered. And as he talks about this and he unpacks his life, it's kind of, again, that last will and testament. It's kind of his epitaph. What he says next in verse 7 is his epitaph of life. What if you were to write your epitaph? Right now, look at your life. If your life ended tragically, what would your epitaph be? For some, be regret. I regret that business deal. I regret that move across the country. I regret that relationship. I regret that spring break where that thing happened. I regret Friday night. I regret. That's bad. I don't want to live a life of regret. It's going to take an intense intentionality in my life. It's going to take a substantive consistency in my life that if I'm going to ever make it a life without regret, as Paul's going to show us here. If I'm ever going to do that, I'm going to have to live differently. But you know what? It's not only what I do that sometimes I regret. It's what I don't do. It's playing it safe. That's the way one person said it. He said, there's a story of a man who wanted a safe life. So he decided not to love because love costs too much. He decided not to dream because dreaming only brought disappointment. He decided not to serve because serving got his hands soiled. And when he died, he presented his life to God, undiminished, unmarred, unsoiled by the messiness of an involved life. He said, God, here's my life. To which God replied, life? What life? I don't want to live that way either. Let's look at Paul's past because his past was going to determine the outcome into the future. Verse 7, he says this, I have fought the good fight. Now, you'll notice he does perfect tense verbs here. Present tense in the first verse we read, perfect tense verb here. There are past events that have happened and closed and finished and done, but they have continuing results. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith three different times, three different verbs. And henceforth there is laid up for me. Now he goes into the future. Laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which is the Lord of righteous, uh, the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, 
And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Now, I love this statement because whenever you go over and you go to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase version, the way he kind of gets in there and kind of wordsmiths it out, he says this, and all that is left now is the shouting. Who's shouting? God's applause. Here's a question for you. Whose applause are you listening for? Living for? Whose applause are, are you leaning in? Because when Paul said here, he said, I'm listening, I'm looking forward to that day. And I am waiting to hear the applause of my God. He talks about this crown of righteousness. Let me just put a definition on this Christianese kind of word here. Righteousness is right living that flows out of a right relationship with God. It's not me doing the right things and therefore ultimately I'll do the right enough things and God will be pleased with me. No, it's because I am doing, it's because I have a right relationship with God that out of that becomes right living. Okay, God gave me this life, I'm not going to waste it. Think about it. God gave you your life, you going to waste it? See, whenever you realize that every breath, every day, you're alive right now, you're here right now, because this is a divine appointment by God, I believe that. Now, if you're an atheist, you're just here by accident, okay? And you'll be worm bait one day. But if you believe in a higher being that God is out there and that God orchestrated some of your life and it's all kind of happening and unraveling or raveling, I don't know. Listen, here's the beauty of it. God can shape and reshape and rebuild your life. But when I'm in a right relationship with Him... Right living comes out. Three qualities of a life that God applauds based on the life of the Apostle Paul. Let's look at them real quickly. The first one is I fight for what is right. Fight for what is right. I I, I know I'm not big on war. I'm not big on war metaphors. But he said I have fought. Now he's very specific here. I have fought the good fight. Now, I know in the Greek, there's not a definite article here, but it is definitely implied in the Greek exegesis of this thing, of this, of this passage, that I have fought. There's a specific good fight. There's a fight that's going on, and it's between good and evil, and I have fought the good fight. So he's very specific about what fight he's been fighting. What is the fight? It's the same fight that he talks about in Ephesians. It's the same fight that he talks about in Romans. It's the same fight that Jesus talks about. When he talks about the war within. The battle's not out there. The battle's not ISIS. The battle's not the Republicans or the Democrats. The battle's not the school systems. The battle is within. The battle is the fight that we fight every day that we live, or we don't. We give in. Jesus said, It's out of the man's heart that evil evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed... Malice, deceit, lewdness. I mean, he's listing them all off here. You think of what's not missing. Look at your own life. Envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. See, the battle is not without. The good battle, the good fight that happened needs to happen inside of me. I'm not worried about the lust. and I'm not worried about the immorality on the TV screen. I'm worried about the lust in my heart. I'm not worried about that person getting a promotion over there on the job. I'm worried about my envy of that person getting a promotion on the job. 
See, the problem is not outside. The problem is inside. And am I going to be one who fights the fight of the battle inside of me, the good and evil battle that's that's raging on? He fought the fight. And this word fight, it comes from the Greek word argon, which is where we get the word agony. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be agonizing at times. It's going to cost you at times. But you've got to fight against that natural tendencies. You've got to fight against the lust and the passions. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 7 when he said, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. What's the problem with me? What is going on in verse 17? He says, it's the sin living in me. It's the sin living in me. That's where we've got to fight the fight. And if you don't wake up every morning and you don't feel a fight and you don't feel a tension, you don't feel a pull, I wonder if you've just given in. R.G. Lee said it like this, one of my great pastors to study of old. He said, if we wake up in the morning and we don't meet the devil face to face, it probably just means we're walking in the same direction. If you don't feel a battle, a pull towards an addiction, towards a feeling, towards an emotion, you may be sucked into it. Be aware. The fight is on for your soul. C.S. Lewis made it clear. This will not appear on the screen, but listen to it very carefully. It says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Now, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. C.S. Lewis did not believe in God. C.S. Lewis was a writer, a philosopher, but he becomes a believer. He said, there's not a neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is, is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Counterclaimed by Satan. There's a war going on inside of you for every square inch in every split second. Number two, finish the task. Not only fight the good fight, be a fighter when it comes to warring against the the things inside of us that war and pull us away from God, the passions, the lust, the desires, the envy, whatever it may be. But also finish your task. Paul said this, I finished my course. Now, I want to get really personal in your life, and I'm really not trying to create tension between you and me. But let me ask you a question. Do you know why you're breathing right now? Do you know why you exist? That car that nearly clipped you, or that accident that nearly happened, or that disease that you've escaped, why? Why you? You fought in a war and you didn't get killed, but your buddy did. Why are you alive? See, again, if you're an atheist, it's just a mere accident. You believe in God, God's up something. He's got a plan for you. He's got a course for you to run. Paul said this, Acts 20, verse 24, long before his passing. He said, I do not consider my life as my own account dear to myself. He says, so that I may finish my course. It's as if Paul knew that God had ordained his life for something beautiful, mystical, empowering, supernatural, and that God had put his hand on Paul's life. You know, oh, yeah, but he was a missionary, and I, and I just sell widgets to Walmart. No, 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 no. That's what brings home the bacon. 
God's got something else for you. What course is he calling you to that you need to run? Oh, I run races every day. I pick up the kids. I take them to that event. I run home. I run to the store. I'm running late. I'm running all the time. No. Dan Allender in his book, Leading with a Limp, it's a great book. I read it this last fall. It said, busyness, however, is moral laziness because it involves refusing to live with courage and intentionality. Come back to the same word I used in the beginning, intentionality. See, when you live intentionally with an intense faith, you will know God's calling and why he put breath in your lungs this morning. And you won't be satisfied with your life until you live that course. Paul said, I have finished the course. My aunt passed away this past spring. Some of y'all know her because she counseled some of you. I didn't always know my aunt as a counselor. She became a marriage counselor 34, 35 years um, ago, and she had already raised two kids. She'd married uh, my, my uncle, who was a military guy and moved all around the world and had done, had done that lifestyle. But then in the li- in, in, I guess in the mid part of life, she realized God's calling me to help families. So I'm going to go back to school. She goes back. She becomes a counselor. She opens up a counseling center just outside of Fort, uh, Fort Sill in, 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 in Lawton, Oklahoma. And it's still going to this day. And then she moves over to Northwest Arkansas and she helps open up Fresh Roots Family Counseling in Rogers. And she starts that. And she lives her life and she lives it so well. And then she retires. And one month after she retired, she's diagnosed with a rare and aggressive form of Parkinson's. We would then for the next year watch her slowly deteriorate till she ended up at Circle of Life and passed away in April. I can remember sitting on her back patio. I mean, Aunt Dale, she made a difference in who I am today. And she said, Mike, I have lived my life. I've done everything I know to do. I've gone every place I know to go. I've lived with this man, she points to her husband, Alan, for 54 years, and I have no regrets. I said, man, that's beautiful. I know people who can't live 54 days without coming out with regret. You've lived that long? No regrets. And she said, she said this, and I'm going to die with no regrets. So she began then to write a book on dying and how to die well. She says, if I lived well, maybe I can help people die well. And as her motor skills were going away and as she couldn't type anymore, she then got somebody to, and she dictated her, her, her words into book form so that this person could put it into the computer. And then when her voice was going... She's in her last sentence she ever said to me, she said, Mike, I'm losing everything but my mind, which is torture for her. And she finished. She said, I cannot die until this book is finished. She had such a calling on her life, she wouldn't end her life by wasting it away. She ran the race. She finished 
the course, I want to challenge all of us to figure out the substance that God's called us to so that we will live our lives of substance with significance. Not just substance for ourselves, but substance with significance. Number three, number three, a life that God values and a life that God will reward is a life when you live your faith, when you're faithful to your faith. You're faithful to your faith. Sounds like a redundant thing there. You're committed and you live out that commitment. That's the consistency. I have kept the faith. I've not wavered. I've not waffled. I have said I'm following Christ and I'll do it till the day I die. Josephus uses this word, first century historian. Josephus uses this word when he's describing uh, the Roman general Titus whenever he was referring to him keeping the faith in getting the troops uh, to the other side. And keeping the faith was this promise that I made made, that I will not back out of my promise. I have made a commitment to the faith. I will not back out. Some of you, I've done it. I've done it. I've been there. Some of us have made a commitment to God, but we've backed out. Made a commitment to our spouse. We've backed out. Made a commitment to our kids. We've backed out. Made a commitment to our church, we backed out. Made a commitment to ourselves, we backed out. Keep the faith. Figure out why on earth God put breath in your lungs. And then let that be the course that you run for the rest of your life. This world is going to try to shape you. You're going to have bells and whistles. You're going to have dings and bings. You're going to have people. You're going to have businesses. You're going to have customers. You're going to have callers and suppliers. And you're going to have, you're going to have it all calling at you. But you're going to have to be the one who says, that is not the course. This is the course that I'm on. You will not dictate it. I am keeping my faith and walking with God. We're watching the Olympics and we're impressed by these athletes and so many of them give their souls to the game, to the sport, to the event. I want you to listen to one of the greatest gymnasts America's ever had in Sean Johnson and her pilgrimage from 2008 to the present. I can remember every detail about Beijing. The smell, the lights, the crowd. I remember Nasty Lucan go up and compete and give a beautiful routine. And I remember looking at her score and it was a, it was one point higher than the highest score I had conjured up in my mind. That it was impossible for me to get a gold medal. I remember my heart just sinking. The entire world is being told. Do I even go out and compete? Do I just throw it? I remember thinking, well, if, if you can't win the gold medal, at least prove to the world that you deserved it. And starting my routine and giving the best routine of my entire life. I'd never felt lighter in my life. I felt like I was on top of the world. I remember seeing 50,000 people on their feet giving me a standing ovation. I told everybody it was the biggest honor of my life, but really kind of crushed my heart. I remember being given the silver medal on the podium 
the person who did it gave me a hug and told me, he said, I'm sorry. And I remember that being really strange for me because it's kind of like I was being given a silver medal at the Olympic Games and being told I'm sorry. So it was kind of like a validation in my heart that I had failed. I got two more silver after that, then finally got a gold. But it was like once I got the gold, I, it didn't matter. But like, I felt like the damage was done. I would go to school every day and every single person would be asking about gymnastics or watching me on TV or reading an interview. I, every news article in the entire world said that I was gonna come home with four Olympic gold medals and I'd given 200% that day in competition and laid it out on the floor, but I felt like I had failed the world. I felt like since the world saw me as nothing else, then if I failed at being a gymnast, I failed at being a human being. I was 16 years old, living in a fishbowl. You know, every single person and their mother was applauding and congratulating me and also critiquing me because I was on a world stage. It was now about what I wore and how I looked. I was growing up in the limelight. I was 16 years old and you know, a, a muscular gymnast, and I was not even four eight, and I was dancing next to girls who were, you know, supermodels. And I remember at, at 16, 17, from Dancing with the Stars, reading all of these blogs and reading newspaper articles and seeing headlines of people criticize my weight and my appearance and, you know, my personality and my character. and. It affected me immensely. It drove me to, to try to change everything about myself. I remember walking into practice one day, uh, getting up on the beam and like standing at the edge of the beam, looking down, getting ready to start flipping. And it's one of those moments that's really hard to explain and really hard for, I, I feel like, a lot of people to understand. but. In that one moment, I felt like God was telling me, you know, you've, you've been so distraught over this decision and been putting yourself through all of this and your family through all of this and you've been afraid of disappointing a lot of people and, you know, not been yourself, but it's okay to, to follow your heart and to, to put it behind you. In that instant, I felt the entire world like be lifted off my shoulders and it was like in that one instant I knew it was all gonna be okay I was I was giving my heart and soul and getting to a place that I was not proud of all for that gold medal again that I distinctly remember in 2008 not being the greatest thing in the world and I think it's just kind of that validation that there's always more. God is the answer to everything. And Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross so that when I stood up there and I was given that gold medal, yes, it's a monumental and amazing experience and wonderful thing, but it's not the end all be all. Yes, I can work my whole life to become the CEO of a company or to make a certain amount of money or to win 12 more Olympic gold medals, but it's not the purpose in life. And 
He will always be my greatest reward and my proudest reward. He will always be my greatest reward. You know, there's so much in that story. I've watched it so many times this weekend. Back through. The weight of the world coming off of her shoulders when she's on the beam. When she hears from God. This fall we're going to study what it means to hear from God. And how you realize that everything you've been training for, everything you've been working for, everything you're about, that's been defining who you are. And the world is throwing stones at it. And you realize, I've been living for that applause. That applause. That applause. Stop it. Whose applause are you listening for? We've seen the present. We've seen the past. Let's look forward to the future. What Paul was looking for while he was still breathing on the earth. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me. You hear the confidence in that? The assurance in that? There's laid up for me. The crown of righteousness. The Stephanos of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all of Grace Point. I have that part who loved his appearing. That phrase may catch you at the end. Think, oh, loved his, it? The whole idea that you are constantly looking to, for Jesus, living your life for the audience of one. Are you pleased with this move? Are you pleased with this relationship? Are you pleased with this job? Are you pleased with my attitude? Are you pleased? And you live your life for that audience. I don't care what everybody else thinks. I don't care audience of one. That's who I'm living for. When that day comes, get in line. Get in step. What it means to walk with God and live with Him and hear Him in a fresh, clean way. In a way that hopefully because of a right relationship with Him, right living comes out of it. Would you bow your heads with me? Because I want you to not hear me. I want you to hear from the Holy Spirit right now. I'm going to ask your soul one question. And then I want you to listen to the voice on the other side. Whose applause am I listening to? I'm going to ask it again. Whose applause... Am I listening to? The Holy Spirit has a way of speaking to us. I know that because the Scripture tells us that He convicts us of sin, righteousness. He shows us what's right and He shows us what's wrong. He gets us on the right path. As a follower of Jesus, you most likely just heard the voice of God. might have heard a voice, what's this guy talking about? Just get up and walk out. Listen, lean in to the still, small voice of God. Let the Holy Spirit speak into you. During our time together, 
yourself. Some pastors will be hanging out here at the front. And we want you to be able to um, be able to pray with someone, if that be the case. But I want you to listen to the Spirit of God in this time. Father God, you know our hearts. You know who and what we are living for. Show us. Show us, Lord. And put us on the right path. And we can say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I finished the course you called me to, God. And I've kept the faith.